morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. We're continuing our study through this little book of Jude, which consists of just 25 verses. But inside those verses, there's enough to keep a theologian busy for a year or two. I mean, they're just loaded. It's packed with doctrine. And I think this is why we've, it's taken us 11 weeks to get through seven verses. Yeah, I know. I just, I thought this would be a good summer, summer series, but it might be a good year series. I don't know, alright? But it's a very important book because it warns the church that it needs to be battling for the truth in a world of apostasy and spiritual defection. The word apostasy is from the Greek word apostasia, and it means defection from the truth. Apostasy is a falling away, it's a withdrawal or a defection from the truth. Titus chapter 1 gives us the qualifications of an elder. It says this, Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Now this is the bottom line qualification for church leadership. They are to have the ability to explain the truth. They are to defend the truth. They are to unmask those who counterfeit it, those who are apostate, those who are going in the wrong direction. This is an essential function of shepherding. We're not only to feed, we're to protect and lead the flock. We have to guard the flock against apostasy. And the church today as a whole is basically going into apostasy. It's all about honoring and lifting up man and the Lord is just basically left out, almost. The Bible speaks very strongly about the judgment of apostates. John the Baptist, in Matthew chapter 3, lashes out against the apostates of his day. He says, when he saw the many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, this may be too strong for our politically correct, oversensitive, you hurt my feelings society. But apostasy is serious and it needs to be addressed in a manner that is serious. The Lord Yeshua, He purchased the church with His own blood. And we need to protect it from apostates. Now, after discussing how these apostates had crept into the church unaware... Jude goes on to speak about the example of Yahweh's judgment on those who had apostatized. He talks about those who came out of Egypt, how the Lord delivered them from Egypt later only to destroy them because of their sin. He speaks of the angels who were in an incredible position of being in the presence of Yahweh in heaven. However, they left their habitation. They didn't keep their first estate and they were judged. Later he speaks of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, giving examples of of how Yahweh judges apostates. Now Jude's history lesson was also a reminder to the church itself. An incentive for them to steer clear of these men and their influence. Now in our passage for this morning, the Holy Spirit through Jude brings his readers back to the present. Back to those who are troubling God's people. And the reason which required his readers to earnestly contend for the faith, as he had told them. So Jude now turns from Old Covenant examples to a description of the characteristic and the abusive attitude of these infiltrators. And he basically deals with that in verse 8 through 16. This morning we want to look at verses 8 through 10. If you can believe that, three verses we're going to cover this morning. Alright, we're going to be here for a while, but we're going to cover three verses, alright? And he compares these apostates' behavior to that of Michael, the archangel. So that's the context here. He's comparing these apostles and their attitude, or the apostates and their attitude, to Michael. Alright, let's look at verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. Now, in order to understand whom he's referring to, we have to back up to verse 4 and get the context there. And it's been such a while since we've done 4. Let's look at it again. He said, for certain persons, that's the these men, have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness 
and deny our only Master and Lord, Yeshua the Christ. So these people have crept into the church. They're infiltrating with their teaching. They, they turning God's grace into licentiousness and they're denying Yeshua as Lord and Master. Then in verse 8, he writes, yet in the same way these men. The word yet is mentoi, which is usually a particle of affirmation, but sometimes it's opposition. This word expresses the idea that even though there are those tragic examples of apostasy from history that we just looked at, nevertheless, these men brazenly continue in a similar offense. They, it doesn't seem to, the examples don't bother them. They just keep going right on. Their arrogance blinds them to the warnings of history. He says, these men, that is the men who have crept in that verse 4 talks about, unaware. He says, in the same way. This is the Greek, homoios. And it means in a similar manner. Likewise. And this is actually saying in a similar manner to the Exodus generation. In a similar manner to the angels of Noah's generation. In a similar manner to the people of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In spite of the fearful punishments just referred to, these creepers, these men, though they know these things, they're still defying the Lord God. It has no effect on them. He says, also by dreaming. Now this is the Greek word, an upniadzomai, which means to have the impression of seeing something while you're sleeping. You understand what a dream is, right? Uh, this was a matter, actually, that Yahweh used to give revelation to His prophets in the Old Covenant. Numbers 12.6 says this, he said, Hear now my words. Is there a prophet among you? I, Yahweh, shall make myself known to him in visions. I will speak with him in a dream. So this is how Yahweh spoke to the prophets of old. This is how he gave his revelation to Jeremiah, to Daniel, to Ezekiel, to Isaiah. They saw visions. As a matter of fact, the book of Isaiah begins with these words. He says, the vision of Isaiah. These are visions that, you know, that's how he communicated often with his people. Well, by dreaming here in this text, probably as a reference to their claims that some of their revelation they got from dreams that they claim that God gave them. So they're coming up with this crazy stuff, this apostate doctrine, but they're saying, hey, we got this in a dream. It's notable that the participle, anopnizomai, modifies all three of the verbs. And the dreams are understood as the basis for the moral baseness of their opponents. In other words, the reason they're living ungodly is because these dreams they got are saying they can do this kind of stuff. These apostates justified their immorality by appealing to the dreams, which they believe function as divine approval for their behavior. The ESV translation emphasizes this association between their dreams and their behavior. It says, in like manner, these people relying on their dreams defile the flesh. In other words, you know, that's what their motivation is. They got these dreams and that's what they're standing on. These dreams have given us justification for the things we're doing. Um, they're basically being led astray by the dreams or saying they are. They're following a, a, these subjective experiences that they claim are from God that lead them to disobey God's Word. Now, you don't hear much today about dreams. People say, well, I had a dream. The Lord showed me this or that. But what you do hear a lot is, the Lord told me this. Or the Lord told me that. And I always I'm like, ooh, that just throws caution. You know, as soon as I hear that, you know, hair starts standing up on the back of my head. How did He do that? How did He tell you that? You know, how do you know it was the Lord who told it to you? You know, when people say, you know, the Lord, Andrea Yates said, the Lord told me to kill my five children. I don't know about that, you know. And here's the thing. If what the Lord told you is in Scripture, then okay, I have no problem with that because it's in Scripture. So you really didn't need to hear a voice because it's already in there. But if what the Lord told you is not in Scripture, then we got a real problem. Okay, you're coming up with stuff. And people get, are so, our Christianity today is so subjective. People who do not have a clue about what the Bible says just are led about by their feelings. Oh, the Lord told me this. How did He tell you that? I just got this impression. 
Stop eating that bad food so late at night before you go to bed. You know, you're having these weird dreams. It's got nothing to do with the Lord. Okay? It has to do with what you're eating. Dreaming and the three following verbs are all in the present tense, indicating this is not just a passing practice. This is their continual habit. All right? They're just, these apostates are being led this way. While relying on their dreams, it says they defile the flesh. Defile here is me, I know, which according to Thayer means to pollute, to sully, to contaminate, to soil. It's used in both physical and moral sense, according to Thayer. The word flesh here is sarks. Now, sarks has a wide range of meaning. You really have to look at the context to figure out sarks. Here, sarks is simply referring to the human body. They're defiling their flesh. So those described here engage in immoral conduct, which tells us, people, that they're out of the will of God. But see, people don't get that today. Today we see church leaders involved in immoral conduct, and the people are like, we don't care what they've done, they're a great leader. I'm like, you people are so ignorant. All right, let's look at what the Bible says about the will of God, because everybody wants to know the will of God. All right, let me tell you what the will of God is right here. Very clear, very specifically. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That is, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is the will of God. That we live holy lives. That's His will. So anybody that's living an unholy life is clueless about what the will of God is. They have morally forsaken the faith. They're apostates. Now while relying on their dreams, they also reject authority. Reject authority here is atha-theo- in the Greek. And Thayer writes that atatheo means to act toward anything as though it were annulled. It's translated in other passages, reject, bring to nothing, frustrate, disannul, cast off. Well, what does they reject? Well, the New American here says they reject authority, which is from the Greek word kureates, which means mastery or rulers. One commentator writes, reject authority obviously seems to me the reference to the statement in verse 4 that they turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny only Master and Lord, Yeshua the Christ. So what we're talking about, this commentator says, is a rejection of the authority of God. Alright, well, I don't have a problem with that. I agree, these they're definitely rejecting the authority of God, but I don't think that's what he's saying here at all. Curiates occurs only three in three other passages in the New Testament. Ephesians 1.21, Colossians 1.16, 2 Peter 2.10. Every one of these passages is a reference to angelic dignities. Alright? Let's look at just one of them. Ephesians 1.21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. This is talking about Yeshua. He's far above these. He's far above all authority, far above all power, far above all dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Alright? Dominion here. Curiates. These rulers and authorities and powers and dominions were an angelic hierarchy that intertestamental Jews had come up with so they could rank the differing powers that they thought would be helping or hindering them throughout their life. See, in that world, in the world of the first century, everything that happened was attributed to a god or a demon. If this happened, a demon did it. If that happened, God did it. You know, everything. They didn't have, they didn't live in a world like we do where Everything is a natural explanation and we can figure out why. No, everything was about the Lord, was about the gods. Alright? Well, Paul piles up four different words here in Ephesians. Rule, authority, power, and dominion encompasses all the spiritual powers. Whatever levels of spiritual power exist, he is saying Yeshua is over them all. Now, Jude is saying here that these men reject They bring to nothing, they frustrate, they disannul, they cast off angels. Strong says a reject means to set aside, by implication to disesteem, to neutralize or violate. It's interesting that two of the stories that were just given in Jude, used about the judgment of apostates, involved angels. 
And now it's still in this context, he's still talking about angels. He talks about the judgment on these. And now he says here, these apostates, they got a real problem with angels. Alright? He goes on to say, while relying on their dreams, they also revile angelic majesties. Now, revile angelic majesties. The word revival, re, revile here is the Greek word blasphemio. As the general sense of speaking reproachfully, injuriously about someone. Perhaps they scoffed at the existence of angels. Perhaps they said, oh, angels, that's ridiculous. They don't exist. Well, the Greek here is blasphemeo doxa. The word angels is not in the text. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the word doxa. What does doxa mean? Glory. Alright, so it says they revile glory. So, what exactly are they trying to say here? Doxa, or glory, has the idea of to give a proper opinion or an estimate of something. In other words, when we talk about God, when we exalt His attributes, we are giving Him glory. When we talk about, we sang this morning, great is His faithfulness. That is an attribute of God. He's faithful. We are honoring, we are esteeming Him, we are giving Him glory because of His faithfulness. It's who He is. Now you may be thinking, why would the translators here take liberty to insert angelic majesties for the word glory or doxa? What is you know, simply doxa, simply glory. Why'd they do that? Well, I think the answer might be found in the parallel passage in Peter. Remember what Peter and Jude, man, they're almost identical here. You'll see some of the same wording here. And especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-will. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels, who are greater in might and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So here, revile angelic majesty is the same phrase we saw in Jude, blasphemo doxa, but Peter then says, whereas angels. So Peter is clearly here referring to angelic beings. These apostates, they blaspheme angels. When even angels, who are greater in might and power than men, don't blaspheme other angels. And that's Jude and Peter's whole thing here. Angels don't do this. Who are these men think they are that they're doing it? And that's what Peter's saying. Even though the text literally says revile glories, glories was a term that was used for angelic beings who were regarded as rays from the grace of God. So one of the things that these apostates did was to attack the angelic world. They rejected, they blasphemed angels. Now, I guess we could say that's what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Didn't you say that's a blasphemy of angels? Um, Sodom and Gomorrah blasphemed angels. They tried to molest these angels. They wanted to have this sex with angels. So, pushed it to the limit with that. So these apostates, even though there are those tragic examples of judgment on apostasy from history, nevertheless, these men, these creepers, They brazenly continue on in a similar offense. Doesn't affect them a bit. They're led astray by relying on their dreams and they disannul angels. They blaspheme angels. These apostates attack the angelic world. Now keep this verse in mind as we look at the next verse. Context. It's king. Remember that. Verse 9 he says, But Michael, the archangel, When he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, Yahweh rebuke you. Alright, but is a dramatic contrast. These men are blasphemy angels, but Michael, the archangel, didn't do that. Alright, Michael. His name is Michael, it's the Hebrew, Michael, and it means one who is like God. Or, who is like God? Who's like God? Jude says, Michael is an archangel. The Greek word archangel here, archangelos, means chief of the angels or one who, of the princes or the leaders of the angels, according to Thayer. We says, first in rank, chief of the angels. Now, there are some who believe that Michael is the pre-incarnate Christ. You ever heard that before? 
<laughs> I argued for that view when I taught through Daniel 12. I said that I believe Michael was Yeshua. I was wrong. I changed my mind. <laughs> That's what you do when you're wrong. And here's the thing, you know, let me let me just give you a little bit of what I argue for here. Here's what I said when I taught through Daniel 12. I say, some say that this can't be Yeshua, because in Jude 9, he says, Yahweh rebuke you. Yeshua is Yahweh, so why would he say, Yahweh rebuke you? Does that sound like a good argument? Well, it might be, I said, until we look at Zechariah. He says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So here we have the angel of Yahweh, and then we have Yahweh saying, you know, these are used interchangeably, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. So here's, what we have here is Yahweh's rebuke, Yahweh saying, Yahweh rebuke you. And that's the exact phrase that we have in Jude. But here it's clearly Yahweh who says it, and the angel of Yahweh is called Yahweh, so Michael is the angel of Yahweh. This is what I argued from 12, Daniel 12. And let me show you why I was wrong. Alright? I'm using Jude 9. Okay, 1-9. And I, when I, as I went back and read the argument, I thought that's a good argument. Except for, if you put Jude 9 in context, if you pull that verse out, you can use it, you, it'll work. Okay? You can make that dog hunt. Alright? But, if you put in context, that context always messes you up, you know? It just does, you know? It, it ruins things. That's why teaching verse by verse, I come across verses I've known all my life and thought they meant something, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh man, just lost another good verse for things I, you know, used to, that just doesn't fit, alright? Well, in Zechariah here, we see Yahweh rebuking Satan. And the angel of Yahweh, who is Yeshua, and Yahweh are used interchangeably. You see this all throughout the scripture. And it says, and Yahweh said, the angel of Yahweh said, you know, they're in the same thing. Alright? The angel of Yahweh is a pre-incarnate Christ. Alright? Who is Yahweh? So, they're used interchangeably. We'll look at that sometime in the future here. So here, Yeshua, as the angel of Yahweh, is rebuking Satan. Alright, and people, a lot of people use this argument from Zechariah to try to prove. But here's the thing. In Jude, Michael does not rebuke Satan. That's the whole argument. He doesn't do it. But he says, Yahweh rebuke you. Jude makes the argument that the apostates blaspheme the glorious ones, or angels who are beings of higher status. And to drive home the point, he argues when he says, but even Michael the archangel doesn't do that. He doesn't pass judgment on Satan. If Michael is actually Yeshua, the eternal, glorious second person of the Trinity, in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells, he'd have full authority to do whatever he wanted to with the devil. It's logically incoherent, people. The view that Michael is Yeshua looks good until you look at Jude 9 in context. And the whole argument is Michael doesn't do that. He leaves that to the Lord. And that's who does it in Zechariah. It is the Lord who is doing it. So then who is Michael the archangel? Well, we see Michael three times in the Tanakh. All in Daniel. Daniel 10.13 says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, Keep that in mind. we got a prince here over Persia. And Persia was a nation that ruled over Israel. Alright? Was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there with the king of Persia. So the context here demands that this prince is a supernatural being rather than a royal human individual. The literature from Qumran also uses this title prince as a reference to chief angels. Again, they had these different rankings of angels. Not, you know, we think of angels, angels. No, they got ranks, alright? I believe that this prince of the kingdom of Persia is a deity, an Elohim, if you will, given custody of Persia. Now, if you remember, the 70 nations were divided 
by God in Genesis chapter 10. The table of nations. He took the 70 nations and he says, listen, you people don't want to worship me. You people keep going astray. You keep following these other gods. You like those gods? Good. You can have them. And he took each one of those gods and he gave them over these 70 nations. So each nation had a god over them. An Elohim. A supernatural being. And then Yahweh says, I'm starting over. And then in chapter 12, he calls Abraham and he calls Israel. He starts over with a new nation. I'm going to be God over Israel. Over and over through the scripture. I am Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. Those other gods ruled the other nations. Alright, so here, this is a king. This is a, a Elohim over Persia. In the book of Sirach, which is part of the Apocrypha, it says, He appointed a ruler for every nation, but Israel is Yahweh's own portion. Sirach 17.7. Even the Apocrypha gets a lot of things right. Okay? That's right. And that's the teaching from Deuteronomy 32 and Deuteronomy 4. So, this prince is over Persia. He's the spiritual ruler behind Persia who has Israel under bondage. We see this prince of Persia battling with Michael, who's the chief of princes. Uh, then we see in Daniel 10.21, However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Again, we see Michael's called a prince. He's your prince. He's a prince over Israel. There's only one other use of Michael in the Tanakh. And that's in Daniel chapter 12. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people. Here we have Michael as a guardian over Israel. He will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation. So this is happening during the tribulation of Israel. A time of distress that never occurred. Alright, at that time, your people, Israel... Everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Alright. So here we see Michael is this great prince. He stands guard over Daniel's people. Michael is the patron angel or Elohim of Israel. Michael's depicted as warring on behalf of Israel and is called Israel's protector. This is one of Yahweh's council members. Michael, I believe, was one of the members of that council who Yahweh meets with, who Yahweh is surrounded by. So in Daniel, we see two gods. We see the gods battling over Israel. The prince of the kingdom of Persia and Michael the prince in a spiritual battle. Now when it comes to the New Testament, we see Michael again battling a prince. But now, it's Satan. Revelation 12.7 And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels. Now, let me ask you this. We saw the the prince of Persia, what nation is Satan over? What nation is Israel under bondage to in the New Covenant? In, okay, What nation is Israel under in the Second Temple period there? It's Rome. And Satan is the spiritual power behind Rome. He's the beast. He has moved from adversary, if you remember our study, and, and if, if some of this is new to you, go back and look at the series that we did on spiritual warfare. I don't know, six or seven messages to try to, you know, hopefully catch you up to speed on all this. But Satan was, I believe, one of those council members. Alright? We see him in the Garden of Eden. Eden in the, his purpose in the Garden of Eden is because I believe he's jealous because Yahweh has brought man into the Garden. Into fellowship with himself. The Garden of Eden is a temple imagery. He's bringing these people in, and the council had always been there in fellowship with God. Now we got man in there, and they didn't like it, so we gotta get rid of this guy. So they get him to sin. He gets kicked out. But then right away, Yahweh produce, you know, comes up with a plan. I'm gonna have, okay, the seed of the woman is gonna produce someone who's gonna crush the head of the serpent. And so they're like, oh, we got to corrupt the divine line. And so then we get to Genesis 6 and all that stuff. Okay, you all know all that, all right? So he is the spiritual power behind Rome. Rome was predicted to be one of the four kingdoms that were going to rule over Judah, Judea. In Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, we got Babylon, we got Persia, we got Greece. And we got, you know, in Daniel, he talks about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. And now we're dealing with the prince of Rome. 
And when he talked about Rome, he said Rome was the, we saw clay mixed with iron in Daniel 2.40 and following. Would persecute the saints, but eventually would be crushed. In Daniel 7.19. And that's, I think, Rome there, the clay and the iron mixed together is Judah mixing with Rome against the Messiah. Alright? And they're going to be crushed. The power is going to be destroyed. We saw in Daniel that Again, the prince of Persia, the priest, the Greece, they had princes over them. They had watchers behind them. Elohims. Wouldn't it make sense that a watcher or chief angel would be behind Rome also? And that's exactly what we have in the book of Revelation. The beast represents Rome and the dragon that gives the power to the beast is Satan. And what did Paul tell the saints in Rome? He says in verse 16, chapter 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan, under your feet. The grace of the Lord Yeshua be with you. So the enemy of Yahweh's people was destroyed in AD 70. The spiritual power behind Rome was crushed. That was the antagonist that made Rome go after them. It was destroyed. Now here, he says, Michael is one of the chief princes. Daniel 10.13. Now the word princes here is plural. How could there be more than one chief prince if Michael is Christ himself? That's an argument that you know people who hold that Michael is Christ, they have a problem dealing with. Um, who are these other chief princes? Are there other people on Christ's level? Well, some try to argue that this plural prince is a reference to the Trinity. But that's really not a good argument here, alright? In Jewish tradition, Michael is the leader of the archangels who dwell in the presence of God according to the ascension of Isaiah 3.16. In this capacity, he functions in a number of roles. He's the patron angel of Israel, he's fighting for Israel against their enemies, and he's an intercessor for Israel before God. The very fact that Michael is described as an archangel indicates that there's different ranks, different orders of angels. In other apocryphal books, this is we don't find this in the Bible, but other apocryphal books, Enoch and Tobit, uh, tell us that there are seven archangels. They name these seven different angels who are archangels. Alright, so that's Michael. He's an archangel. He's an Elohim. Alright? If you read Psalms 82, we see that Elohim sits in the council of the Elohim. There's other Elohim there. Yahweh is the chief. He's the one who created all these. So it's not like they're his competition or anything. He's above them. Jude goes on to say, when he disputes with the devil and argued about the body of Moses. Now, this is a difficult text. In part because this incident is recorded nowhere else in Scripture. This passage, according to modern authorities, is derived from the apocryphal book, The Assumption of Moses. Now, supposedly, Clement of Alexander, Origen, and Didymus, who were early church fathers, claimed that Jude 9 was a quotation from The Assumption of Moses. But here's the interesting thing. There's no surviving portion of it containing this passage. So we can't really validate it. We can't even dig up the Assumption of Moses and show that. Uh, the first part of the Assumption of Moses was lately found in an old Latin translation at Milan. But this text, or supposedly what this says, is not in there. So we're kind of shooting in the dark here if you say you know that's where this comes from. And this is why the authority of this epistle is questioned in early times by so many people because of, you know, supposed quotes from outside the Bible. We'll talk about that later in Jude. Um, these citations from the apocryphal writings really sent some people, uh, set them back a little bit. Well, in the Assumption of Moses, it's supposedly stated, again, <laughs> we don't have it. We can't verify it. It's supposedly stated that God gave the Archangel Michael a message. A command to take the body of Moses and bury the body of Moses. But also in the book, it is said that Satan disputed the right of Michael to do what he was told to do. That's interesting. Okay? So we have an apocryphal book supposedly saying that Yahweh told Michael to bury the body, but the Bible itself tells us who buried the body. Yahweh. Deuteronomy 34, 5, and 6. So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab. I love this. He goes up to the mountain. Okay, Moses, your time, die. Okay, he just died. What a way to go. All right, is this your time? Let's just go. 
All right? He's strong. His eyes are not dim. He's just doing whatever he needs. It's time to go. Let's go. Great way to go. All right? According to the word of Yahweh, he just died. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. Who buried him? He, Yahweh, buried him. Opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Oh, it's secret. See, that's where people, you know, jump on this and say, oh, there's a secrecy behind this burial. So it, it wasn't Michael, if the apocryphal book, Assumption of Moses, says that. It's kind of contradicting the Bible here. There is a rabbinic comment on, on this text in Deuteronomy, where Michael is said to have been the guardian of Moses' grave. Well, that doesn't really go against Scripture. He could have been said, okay, I, I buried him now. Michael, you guard the grave. The Jews had an enormous amount of tradition regarding Moses and his death. Okay? I mean, it is, you know, you read this text, it's a little, oh, he just goes up there, he dies, he buries him, no one knows where he went, you know, no one knows where the grave is. So Jude doesn't give us the backstory on this. He doesn't give us any details. Why? I think he assumed his Jewish readers knew what he was talking about. We don't. Was it from the apocryphal literature? I mean, they were well familiar with the apocryphal literature, but we don't know that that's really where this came from. We can be assured that whatever the source of this quote, it ultimately came from the Holy Spirit who inspired Jude to write this. All right? It follows in this incident between Michael and Satan arguing over the body. is true. It happened. We just don't know what exactly he's talking about. Well, let's break down the language here and see if it helps any in understanding what is going on here. The word disputed here is the Greek word diakrino, which literally means to judge between. And in this context, it means to contend or to strive with another. Disputed is a present tense participle and points to a continuing altercation between Michael and Satan. All right, this is not a one-time deal. This is an ongoing struggle here. The word devil is from the word diabolos, all right? It means the accuser, false accuser, slander. Yeah, we understand that. He's always bringing charges, especially against the people of God. And then we have the word argued here as dialegomai, and it means to engage in an interchange of speech in order to convince by reasoning. In Mark 9.34, where the disciples were arguing about who's the greatest, this is the word that's used. They're sitting there arguing about, they're, you know, they're trying to convince one another that they're the greatest and they should have the best seat. All right. It's not surprising that we see Michael engaged in a form of warfare because all the other passages that mention him allude to this aspect of spiritual or angelic warfare going on. Jude does not say when this occurred nor exactly why it occurred, so we really have to be careful speculating here exactly what's going on. Well, what, one thing we do understand from this text is they were arguing about the body of Moses. And we've already seen in Deuteronomy 34, Moses died on Mount Nebo after seeing the promised land, but he couldn't go in it. The Lord just took him up there and showed it to him. He couldn't go because of his disobedience. Well, many have understood this verse in Deuteronomy, or in Jude, to indicate that Michael and the devil had an argument over the disposal of Moses' corpse. But I mean, you know, Yahweh buried him. So what are they arguing about the corpse for? And it's easy to see why people could reach this conclusion. When the scripture uses the phrase, the body of, followed by a proper noun, it often refers to a corpse. For example, in 1 Samuel uh, 31, 12. And the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and they buried them. So it was corpses. They took the corpse and they buried it. We see the same thing in Mark 15, 34 where uh, Joseph of Arimathea wants the body of Yeshua, his corpse. But what exactly did Satan want to do with Moses' corpse? Well, Josephus, in his antiquities, suggested Satan would have used it as an idol or object of worship, propped the stiff corpse up, and the people fall down on his feet. That's not hard to believe at all, is it? You know, the Catholic Church worships everything. They got pieces of the cross they worship. They have enough pieces of the cross to build a whole new cathedral, all right? They have, I mean, they have all kinds of stuff that they worship, artifacts. And you can imagine if you had a corpse of Moses, people would be worshiping it, all right? He was a really important figure. And because of the secretive nature of Moses' burial in Deuteronomy, many have understood Jude 9 as a reference to a dispute over Moses' corpse. They're fighting over the corpse. But viewing Jude 9 as a reference to Moses' physical body raises a lot of questions. 
There's no evidence elsewhere in Scripture of a dispute over Moses' corpse, and it's not clear why the devil would want that corpse in the first place. You know, what exactly is he going to do with it? I think that the way to understand Jude 9 is to recognize the Scripture sometimes uses the term body of, followed by a proper noun, to describe a corporate body. Not a corpse, not an individual body. Paul repeatedly refers to the church as the body of Christ. All right, he's not referring to a corpse. Look at Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do share on my behalf of his body, which is the church. So here he's saying the body of Christ is the church. Now while Michael was given the task of defending Israel, the devil is constantly attacking and accusing Israel. Constantly. So it's not surprising that Michael and the devil had a dispute over them. All right. Their argument is not over Moses' corpse, but over Satan's endless accusations against believing Israel. The body of Moses. That's what Israel was, the body of Moses. We know that Satan and Michael disputed over Israel. We see that in the Scriptures, in Revelation. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, And we're all baptized into Moses. Now, you know here that the people who came through out of Egypt, came through the Red Sea, they didn't get wet. Right? But they were baptized. See, people see baptized right away, they go to the water. Baptism has the idea of being identified with. Alright? And that's the idea here. They were identified with Moses. This baptism occurred as they left Egypt. It was part of their Exodus experience. In this baptism, the Jewish people were brought into the covenant relationship with Moses who became their representative before God. They didn't want to even talk to God. They said, you talk to Moses, you give us the word, we don't want to deal with it. Too scary. So Israel becomes the body of Moses. In Romans 6, 3, Paul says, Or do you not know that all of you have been baptized into Christ Yeshua, have been baptized into His death? So Paul talks about being baptized into Christ. He talks about being baptized into Moses. This shows that the physical people of Israel who made up the Old Covenant were the body of Moses. Now, since Michael was the great prince who stood guard over Israel, Daniel 12:1, and Satan was the spiritual power behind Rome, who was Israel's captor and enemy, I think it's easy to understand how they battled over Israel, the body of Moses. This conflict is going on in this spiritual realm. Because Rome's ruling over Israel. Apostate Israel is joining with Rome in the battle against the people of God. Jude goes on to say that Michael did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment. The word judgment here is chrysis. It means accusation, condemnation, damnation. It comes from crino, which means to judge. Now, chrysis means to decide a question of legal matter, right or wrong, the determination of innocence or guilt of the accused. Chrysis denotes the expression of a verdict. So what it's saying here is Michael refused to pass sentence on the devil on his own authority. He didn't do it. Now, Michael is an archangel. You think, well, that's a pretty high rank. Okay, how come he can't pass judgment on Satan? Well, Michael was an archangel, but Satan was a cherub. All right? According to Ezekiel 28. Let's look at Ezekiel 28, 13 and 14. You were in Eden, the garden of God. All right, this is temple energy. He was in the presence of God. I believe Satan was a throne guardian who forsook his position. He says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Anointed cherub is the word mimsha, which may mean anointed, but it came from a Semitic homonym, which meant to shine. The shining cherub. Now, if you remember our study of Genesis chapter 3, Okay, the Nakash there, the serpent, was the shining one. This idea of luminescence. It's not a snake, okay? It's a luminescent being. Cherubs are the highest form of angelic being. Cherub and seraphim are the same. In Assyrian, they're a throne guardian. Brown Driver Briggs' definition is 
an angelic being, a guardian of Eden. The cherub, serpent, figure is in the midst of the stones of fire here, which is a reference to the divine council. So he is a council member. He is there. In this text, in Ezekiel 28, is a difficult text. He's alluding to earthly kings, but he's talking about the power behind them also. So a lot of people want to say, oh, this isn't talking about angels. Listen, what king was in the Garden of Eden? Who was the anointed cherub? These are angelic powers behind the kings who are ruling. So Satan is a fallen throne guardian, a cherub, the highest. Michael's an archangel, a chief angel, but he's still lower creature than a cherub. So he didn't damn Satan, but he said, Yahweh rebuke you. So even though Michael was powerful enough to cast Satan out of heaven, according to Revelation 12, he left in God's hands the pronouncement of judgment on an angel rather than do it himself. Michael says to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you. And the point is here, Jude's point, is that if a mighty archangel had respect for celestial powers, how much more should these apostates? Who do they think they are reviling angels, condemning, blaspheming angels? Michael the archangel wouldn't do that. Now, the words the Lord rebuke you have we seen, um, they come in Zechariah 3. Exact words are found in Zechariah 3. The angel of the Lord replies to the charges of Satan. Listen, Michael was there when this happened. Michael knows the story. He knows the text. He knew the scene. And Michael did just what the pre-incarnate son did. He didn't say, I rebuke you, Satan. God could do that. He said, The Lord rebuke you. That's up to the Lord to do that, Satan. I'm not getting involved in that. And the whole point, again, is he's showing these apostates are doing something that an archangel wouldn't even do. They're way stepping beyond their bounds. Alright, so Jude's argument argument is this. These creepers, these men insult angels. But the archangel Michael wouldn't even presume to blaspheme the devil himself, but left the judgment to God. If Michael, as an archangel with high authority, didn't even presume to judge Satan... How can these opponents be so filled with pride that they insult angels who have a certain glory? All right. Let's look at verse 10 quickly. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things, they are destroyed. Peter puts it this way. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of these creatures also be destroyed. But here, again, shows a contrast. These men belittle, these men criticize the things they don't understand. Anything outside their experience, they discard as worthless and irrelevant. They continuously, it's present tense, revile, slander, and rail against that to what they have no knowledge. They have no more knowledge than the brute beast who are just making a lot of noise. He says, in the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By instincts is fusikas, which means instinctly or naturally. Fusikas is only used one other time in 2 Peter 2.12. It means natural, or that which is produced by or belongs to the natural. Governed by natural instincts. These false teachers act like instinct-driven animals, guided not by intelligence, but by their animal-based Cravings. Unreasoning animals. The Greek word here for unreasoning is alagos. And the alpha primitive negates the word logos, which means, logos means word, speech, thought. So keep in mind that word, speech, or thought are the basis of thinking. So alagos actually means no thinking. Unreasonable, absurd, no thought at all. These men, they're not thinking. They're just acting on their base instincts. They think they're guided by these dreams, so they're just doing whatever feels good to them. By these things, they are destroyed. Destroyed is pharaoh, and it means to cause harm in a physical manner, in an outward circumstances. It's using the present tense passive voice, indicating that they are in a state of continual destruction. Because of their apostasy, they're under the judgment of God, they're in a state of continual destruction. The false teachers that Jude is dealing with, act in the very same way 
as those apostates that Yahweh judged, that he gives the examples from history. And the implication is that they deserve the same fate. They're doing the same thing, they deserve the same fate. Their rejection of authority and slander speech is contrasted with Michael, who's an archangel, who would not even slander the devil, presumptuously because of his former authority, but he wouldn't slander him. Yet these false teachers slander all authority. Which just reveals their lack of understanding and the triggering of the natural consequences which they are very things that will destroy them. So he is giving us in this text the characteristics of these apostates. They know about judgment. They don't care. They say they're guided by dreams, but these men are immoral. And people, the one thing I want you to get from this text is that is one characteristic of apostates. All right, they claim to be leaders of God. They claim to hear from God, but they live in an ungodly, immoral manner. And as we saw in Thessalonians, the will of God is our holiness, our sanctification. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, I thank you that as we put your word in context, it just gives us such a clear picture and understanding of things. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be careful in our spoof texting, Lord, that we wouldn't just pull verses out here and there and use them in defense of our own agenda. We'd allow the word to speak in context. We'd let it say what it truly says. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Give us understanding hearts so we may know your word, Lord. Amen.